If you have your Bibles with you, would you open up to Philippians chapter 4? And if you're using the blue Bibles in the backs of the pews, that can be found on page 982. Uh, picking up from where we left off this morning. But before we do, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ, for all the promises that are ours, not through anything we have done, but through him. We pray this evening as we close our Lord's Day that you would help us set our minds and our hearts upon him, that we would know our Savior well. Pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of our Lord. Now, this morning I shared that the theme of unity was one of the main melodic lines that was woven throughout the book of Philippians. And this evening we actually come to the second main melodic line, the theme of joy. Fourteen times throughout this book, Paul makes reference to our joy or to our rejoicing. He, in the opening prayer, prays for the Philippians with joy. He rejoices that Christ is preached. They make his joy complete as they are like-minded with one another. He calls them to welcome Epaphroditus back with joy. They are to rejoice in the Lord and not in their own works for salvation. And now this theme reaches its crescendo here in chapter 4 with the twice repeated command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now let's pause and think about that sentence for a moment. Because while it sounds simple enough, it actually has incredible implications for us. Number one, this is given as a command. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not a trite phrase that you just put on a coffee mug or on a piece of wall art. It's not a get well soon card. It's not a, a pat on the back and say, oh, things will be better. It is a command from God that the Christian is called to obey. Paul is telling us what kind of state of mind and emotion we ought to be exhibiting as Christians. And second, he qualifies the command for us. When ought we to rejoice? He says rejoice in the Lord always, without ceasing, never ending joy. And to make this point again, he repeats the command. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will tell you again, one more time, you are to rejoice. I remember when I was in high school, after I had just come to faith, would talk to my friends about why I became a Christian or the benefits of following Jesus. And I remember one of the things that I used to say all the time is that, you know, if you follow Jesus, you're just going to be happy all the time. Your, your life is just going to go better. Things will go well for you. You're going to have way fewer problems, and you're just going to be happy. But is that what Paul really means by rejoice always? Is he saying that you're just going to have sort of Smile FM playing as the soundtrack to your life? Well, on the one hand, if you are following God's laws, then things will generally go better for you. You will generally be happier than if you were disobeying. But that's not exactly what Paul has in mind with this command to rejoice. He isn't saying to rejoice in the Lord always because it will just be nonstop blessings for the rest of your life. He gives this command knowing full well that the Christian life is going to be one of sorrow, one of trial, and one of suffering. And yet, knowing that, he tells them to rejoice. After all, Paul is writing this letter in a prison cell, waiting to find out if he is going to live or if he is going to die. He'll say in the next paragraph that he's learned how to face hunger, how to have a lack of basic material possessions and necessities, how to face affliction. So he's not saying that you just need to have a bubbly attitude because your life will be easy. Even in the worst of circumstances that Paul himself is experiencing, he's telling them to rejoice. This command is something much deeper, much more secure than simply having a happy attitude. So in order for us to fully understand what Paul means by this command to rejoice always, I want to study the rest of this passage and the other commands that he gives, because I think they actually give some color to the overarching command of rejoicing. So there's four commands that Paul gives to provide some context, help us understand what they mean, and then hopefully at the end we'll connect the dots between these four commands and the call 
to rejoice. So first, Paul tells them, again, to be reasonable. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or to translate it slightly differently, demonstrate gentleness and forbearance with everyone. And this includes your opponents. So, so everybody around you, there, there ought to be a spirit of gentleness, of humility, of kindness towards them. Think about what is Paul's mission in life, even while he is chained in prison? So tell others about the love of Jesus. And he's not doing this as sort of this raging bull or this brash, in-your-face pundit. No, he tells the Philippians that there ought to be a reasonableness, a gentleness, a kindness, a graciousness about them in everything that they do. Everyone who encounters them ought to walk away thinking, wow, that person is gentle. They're reasonable. They're not hard-headed. And so not even the injustice of his imprisonment, for which is imprisonment for telling the truth about who Christ is, not even that is enough for Paul to throw the command of reasonableness out the window. Think about how the world operates today. There's even the slightest hint that you don't measure up to the world's level of morality, to their standard. You get canceled on the spot. Think how many people have lost their jobs, lost their friends, lost their families, some even lost their lives because a mob of angry protesters doxed them over a careless tweet. Self-righteous indignation is the way of the world. It is not the way of Christ or the Christian. Because the Christian has a greater sense of security than what the world has to offer. Think of if what we actually have for ourselves in Jesus, the reward that we're waiting for can never be lost, then we never have to validate ourselves and make ourselves feel better on the backs of others. No, the Christian can lead with gentleness even in the face of hostility because we have a greater security. So let your reasonableness be known to all. Second, Paul commands the Philippians not to be anxious about anything because the Lord is at hand. Even for the Christian who has another 50, 60, or 70 years to go, there is still a, a nearness, an imminence to the meeting of our Savior. Think, how, how can you say that? How can 70 years be soon? Well, I say that because compared with the eternal, never-ending weight of glory that we will experience, our small lifetime is just the blink of an eye. Think, have you ever been to Disney World? Been there a few times. It's 
It's like when you come into Disney World, you pull off the highway and you start seeing all of the signs for the different parks and you pass Mickey and Minnie and Donald Duck and Goofy. And you don't care that you still have, you know, a few more miles to go on the off ramp that you still have to wait to pay for parking and walk into the park. There is an excitement because you know that you have an entire day of magic ahead of you, right? That little bit of waiting left in the car is overshadowed by all that you have waiting for you when you arrive. It's the same for the Christian. What we have left in this life is nothing compared to the eternity and splendor with our God and our King. And so even the threat of prison for Paul and the Philippians, the threat of losing their dear friend, their dear pastor, should not be enough to overshadow their heavenly reward that is just on the horizon. And because they know that that is near, they, they don't need to be anxious about what this life has for them. They can wait patiently for what is in store. There's a second remedy to their anxiety that Paul commands them to participate in. It's our third command we'll look at, and that is that they are to turn to the Lord in prayer. Again, Paul says, in everything, by prayer, And supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. First, he instructs them to offer general prayers to God. Right? That's the the first word of the use of prayers, just this general going to the Father. Then says make supplications. That's it's more specific. That now you go to the Lord and, and Talk to him about what you need. Petition God for your needs, for the needs of others. And then lastly, he uses a very specific word, requests, which is to tell God exactly what you need. It's to be definite and specific. Bring your specific prayers to the Father. And this threefold repetition of these synonyms for prayer ought to help remind us that the prayer isn't meant to be some magic formula or something where we're just reciting the same form prayer over and over again, and we're not actually thinking about what we're saying. So God wants us to simply speak to him, to to let him know what is on our hearts and to bring specific needs before him. And not just the major events where we feel totally hopeless and in over our heads. No, Paul says, in everything, offer your prayers to God. Think far too often we can treat God like a safety net or an emergency brake on a car. We've got everything under control. We've got everything handled ourselves. But if something goes really wrong and, and everything starts spiraling out of control, then I can go to God for help. 
Paul tells us that it ought to be a constant practice to be speaking to God, to be sharing your heart, your cares, your worries, your needs with him, both in the great and in the small. And if you think, okay, I I get that. I just don't know how, what what to pray for. How do I do this? I, I tell my kids this when they're learning what it means to pray. Just praying to God is simply like talking to God as if he's standing right in front of you. That's all it is. It's speaking with a friend who's right by your side. It's no magic formula. There's no special incantation that you need. Just opening up your heart and talking to your father. And the more you do it, the more comfortable it gets, the more normal it feels. So we ought to bring our prayers consistently to God. And there's one more important qualification that Paul makes about the way we ought to pray. He says that it should be with thanksgiving. As one commentator put it, that without thanksgiving, prayer becomes merely a way of complaining to God about all the bad things that are happening. Again, this doesn't mean that the only words that come out of your mouth are thank you, but it means that when you come to God, there ought to be a spirit of thanksgiving, that you can still still express real hurt, real anguish, real fear, real frustration. Those are real ways to pray. I preached through the Psalms a couple years ago, and we saw that the Psalms were full of saints crying out to God and lament. But in every Psalm of lament, every cry of anguish, what does the author do after crying out to God? They turn back to God in a posture of trust, a posture of thanksgiving, knowing that God hears them even in their most desperate situations. He knows their every need. And they know that God will meet every one of those needs exactly the way that we need him to meet every one of those needs even if God meets them in ways that we don't understand or expect. You can pray with thanksgiving because you know God is there, that he hears you, that he cares, and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, even if we cannot yet see that good. Pastor Jonathan was here a few weeks ago, and he shared this story, and I'm going to share it again. So I'm always struck by the faith of these young women. Uh, In her biography, Corey Tenboom was recounting her time in a Nazi concentration camp, and she recounted a time hearing her sister Betsy praying and thanking God for the fleas that were in their cabin, thinking, Betsy, you have gone too far. Why on earth would you thank God for fleas? And it was only some time later that she realized that they were able to freely worship and pray and study their Bibles in their cabins 
because the guards would never go into their cabins because they're afraid of getting the fleas. Christian, we can know and trust that God is working all things for our good. We can go and pray to God in everything in thankfulness for that reality. It's one last command that Paul gives, and it's really a, a summary. I'm summarizing the last paragraph that we read of all of the virtues that he tells the Philippians to practice. Again, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So there's six virtues that Paul lists. And most commentators make a note that these six virtues are actually very unique to Paul's writings. And, and they, they all have an obvious uh, connection or reference to the character of God. They're also virtues that the Greek philosophers of the day loved to sort of ramble on about and debate. You remember, Philippi was a very prominent Roman city. They had been well-versed in all of these philosophies. You can think of it as sort of an ancient Ann Arbor, right? A lot of wealth, a lot of scholars, very prominent city in its region. And the, while the average citizen, they, they could listen to debaters dissect the meaning of the word love and describe the, the truly commendable citizen, as they listened to these debaters, they ultimately fell short of what it meant to truly exemplify these virtues. So Paul tells the Philippians that you know all of these philosophers. You know all of the virtues that they go on about. Think about them. And really saying, take account of these things. See where they find their true meaning, their true source, their true example. Think about the things that you've learned from me, the true virtues that I have shown you that, that I've put into practice that you've seen me living out. See, he doesn't want them to settle just to be Roman citizens. He wants them to be something better, something greater. He wants them to be citizens of heaven. I think this is good for students here to consider, but not just students, parents, kids, too many dogs or cats here. Think about, there is a wealth of knowledge and information that is being taught just down the road at the university. Much of it's good. Much of it is true. Much of it will help you do well in this life. But one thing you have to ask yourself as you're being taught by these philosophers and these teachers is ask yourself how much of it is true. How much of it is right? How much of it is good? Because in addition to economic theory, 
to the hydraulic systems that will be in your airplane, the latest in childhood development. You're also being taught about what it means to be just, what it means to be loving, being taught about human nature, what morality is and isn't. And ironically enough, the answers that you're getting today are vastly different than the answers I even received when I was in college, which despite how I look was not that long ago. If you want to know the true answers to what is lovely, to what is pure, to what is commendable, you look to Jesus, who is the very author of love and purity, and commendability. If you want to know what's wrong with our human nature and how to fix it, you look to Jesus, whose very mission in the church is redeeming people. So if you're here, you're still trying to figure out Christianity, still trying to figure out if this is true, if Jesus is worth following, let me point you to the very same challenge that Paul gave to the Philippians. You're probably here because one of Campus Outreach staff brought you, or at least someone who knows the staff brought you. you you've gotten to know them. You've seen their way of life. You've seen how they, they think about Christ, how they think about the world. I want to ask you, consider what you have seen in them. Consider their way of life. Is it different from the world? Ask yourself, does the way they see things make sense of what you see going on around you in the world? Does this way offer a better way to pursue, pursue virtue? Does it answer your deepest longings and anxieties? Promise you. You can look as long as you want. There is nothing out there that is going to give you the same security, the same hope that you will find in Jesus. I promise you, because he is the one who defines what hope is. You can keep looking, but you will always be searching until you come to him. So practice the virtues that you see in Christ. Now, I told you at the beginning that after we looked at these four commands, that we would have a better sense of how they all fit together to help us make sense of the first command to rejoice in the Lord always. And hopefully you've seen each step of the way through these commands. I've tried to highlight some of the scaffolding, some of the framework in this passage that, that holds up the weight of Paul's argument. Again, how does the Christian rejoice even in the midst of their deepest sorrows? We rejoice because we never forget what we have in Christ. I think we can say it so often that it, it sometimes can feel trivial or like some religious mantra, but do not lose sight of all that Jesus has done for you, all that he is currently doing for you, and all that he will do 
for you. Do not take your eyes off the heavenly reward and the eternal promises that are yours and the joy that will be yours with him. Do not forget that all of this is yours, not because of how great you are, but because Jesus has secured it for you. Don't forget that on the way to this reward, when you have trials, God still hears your prayers. He still answers them in a way that is going to bring you safely home. And all of that glory, all of that hope is right there. You're you're that close to receiving your reward. So don't let the suffering, all the things that you, you experience in this life crowd out the vision of that glory. That is why Paul says he can rejoice always. That is the secret that he learned of finding strength in Christ. Again, you're going to suffer along the way to heaven. Again, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even close. And yet you feel hopeless in this life. You are not alone. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The scariest of circumstances. God is right there with you in the midst of them to bring you through to your great reward. I'm going to close with the prayer that Habakkuk prayed at the end of his book. Chapter 3, verse 18 Hear the immense suffering that the prophet is going through. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fails, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. It's got nothing left. Yet I will rejoice. In the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Has nothing and still has everything. The Bible is not blind to the sorrows that we face when it tells us to rejoice in the Lord. The men who penned these verses know sorrow more than most. But they also knew their Savior. They knew the glory that was awaiting them. So do not let us be blind to the glories and the joy and the hope that we have in Christ. So that even in times of trouble, we too may rejoice. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that there is hope for the Christian. Hope because of what Jesus has done for us. That no matter what happens to us in this life, nothing can take that hope away. 
And we pray that you would help us cling to this so that even in the hardest of circumstances and the deepest anxieties, you can say with Paul that we will rejoice in the Lord. I would pray this in our Savior's beloved name. Amen.